0: Church, let's remain standing for the reading of God's word. We're going to look at verses. We're going to read a longer passage today because we're going to unpack this over the next three weeks. Let's hear the word of the Lord from John chapter 4. When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went again to Galilee. He had to travel through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the property that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well, and it was about noon. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. "'Give me a drink,' Jesus said to her, because his disciples had gone into a town town to buy food. "'How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink of me, a a Samaritan woman?' she asked." For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God, and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Sir, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket. And the well is deep. So where do you get this living water? You You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this well will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I give him will become a well of water springing up for him for eternal life. Sir, the woman said to him, give me this water so so that I won't go thirsty and have to come draw water. Come here to draw water. Go call your husband. He told her. And come back here I don't have a husband she answered you have correctly said I don't have a husband Jesus said for you've had five husbands and the man you are with now is not your husband what you have said is true sir the woman said I see that you're a prophet our ancestors worshiped on this mountain but you Jews say that the place of worship is in Jerusalem to worship is in Jerusalem and Jesus told her believe me woman an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither in this on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. Amen. But an hour is coming, and now is here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him i know that the messiah is coming who is called the christ when he comes he will explain everything to us and jesus told her i the one speaking to you am he amen, amen. this is the word of the lord thanks, be to, god. thanks be to god indeed a familiar passage no doubt for most of us one that has got so much wonderful, rich uh, goodness for us to behold and consider over the next couple of weeks. It would, be, do the, it would not do this passage justice for us to spend just one week uh, glossing over it, but to think through it with some renewed eyes, spirit-infused eyes, if you will. One of the most outstanding, astounding things about doing a study through the gospel, at least for me, um, is that as you press through it, we did God, the gospel of Mark uh, at the beginning of our church life in 2016, we're now in gospel of John now, is that you understand that the gospel message, if you're even reading it at all, is for everyone. Amen. That all people are to be told about the gospel, that all people are offered the gift of the gospel and that's what we have seen thus far in our study in john is not it not we saw all the way back in chapter one as jesus begins his earthly ministry that he comes into the lives of religious and social outsiders like john the baptist and his disciples of whom jesus would gain one of his most um, chief disciples john the apostle himself the one who wrote this gospel and then we go over to John chapter three. We've studied it in the last few weeks, as we see Jesus enter into the lives of religious and social insiders, like Nicodemus. And today, and for the next few weeks, we will see that the gospel message is pressed even further in more spectacular ways, if you will, to cross ethnic and religious and moral morally bankrupt exiles who need this message just as much as any of us do this is a message that has no boundaries does it anyone who is willing to receive christ can have their sins forgiven that's why we must be faithful to share it and to preach it as we are able in whatever season we find ourselves. The reason why this is important for us to consider this morning, and over the next three sermons in this passage, not including Easter, we'll do focus on something else for Easter, is that we find our world, like what? Panting for acceptance, right? Panting for uh, to be included to define what it means to be included, to define what it means to be accepted, to even, as we've seen so blatantly, to redefine the boundaries of uh, human biological identity in order to be included or to feel included, maybe a better way of putting it. And yet we as Christians need to recognize that those ends, no matter how far they stretch, no matter how far the boundaries are, are pressed to their edges, will never end up actually accomplishing the goal that they set out to do. And that's why we, more than, more than any other time in, in this world, need to recognize that we are called to preach the gospel like we see in Christ, as he, as, he, as he lovingly cares for and persistently and patiently pursues this woman that we will be talking about the next few weeks. So that all people of all places and all times recognize that the only way that they find their true self is in jesus it begins with jesus and it ends with jesus full stop and so our summary if you will for this morning as this first part of this little series i'm calling uh, on the call and practice of evangelism is to recognize that jesus's encounter with this samaritan woman reminds his people how much jesus loves careless and irreligious sinners of all stripes and how we might best engage them through our gospel witness that's what we're going that's really the big idea for the next three sermons in john is to recognize that jesus loves i'll say it again careless and irreligious sinners very much and we should too And so as we look at the world, the complicated world that we live in today, we must never forget what we are truly called to. We, But yet as we look at this and we look at Jesus' life and we see how he engages so lovingly and caringly, caring in such a way for these people, for this woman, we recognize in our own selves we need help, don't we? Like, we don't really share our faith like we should, do we? we? We find ourselves being unnerved by the task. We find ourselves so easily being turned and twisted upside down so that we end up pushing ourselves back into a corner, a corner of our own making in most cases, not a corner that the world presses on us, but a corner of our own making because we're so afraid of losing social credibility. And so, again, so the, the goal of this text is really... To, to really flesh out, as I've been working over the last couple of weeks on this particular story, to flesh out 10 truths. And instead of me taking one sermon and like doing a, like a, a real rapid fire 10 points to better evangelism for you this morning, I want to take those 10 points and I want to bury them into this text for the next three, three sermons in John. So that we slow drip this one, this wonderful realities that we face with, and understand that Jesus loves us. He loves us whatever condition we find ourselves in. And if we will repent and turn to Christ, we can have the fullest measure of new life we could ever imagine. And then at the same time, that gives us new, fresh joy, boldness to go and break that message to others. So if you wanted to break down the sermon, this, this text into three sermons, here's what we're going to do. Today, we're going to talk about the grounds for uh, evangelism. Next week, we're going to talk about the necessities for, needed for true conversion. And then we'll end it after Easter with the fruits of joyful witness, okay? Seems easy to kind of break it down that way. So today we're going to talk about the grounds for faithful evangelism. And in this, today, I want to press out four of those ten points. I'm going to try to move as fast as I can, but I want to make sure that we take time to really think about each of these four points. And we're going to look at four, I'm going to go ahead and tell you what they are now in case you're following along in your bulletin, you want to take good notes, and you're studious like, like that. Number one, we will look at evangelism as divine appointment, that there's something sovereign in our evangelism that God's doing and sometimes we don't recognize. Two, we'll find evangelism as persistent and patient discourse with unbelievers. Third, we will see evangelism as readiness to give mercies to careless sinners. And fourth, at the end, we will come back as evangelism as radiating the priceless excellencies of Christ. That's all we're going to cover in first 14 verses this morning. So let's talk about that first point, evangelism as divine appointment, or you might say as sovereign appointment, that all of our task in evangelism is to be yielded to God's sovereign work in our lives, that understanding God's sovereign work in our evangelistic efforts will be of most encouragement to us than anything else we see here this morning. Because what oftentimes happens in our inability or lack of interest or maybe fear of sharing and talking about the gospel is, 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 a, is a quick forgetfulness, an often forgetfulness, of God sovereignly appointing you to the task. And if he sovereignly appointed you to the task, he has means and ends that he has accomplished through that, and those are up to him, not to you, not for you. And that regardless of whoever you talk to and speak to about the gospel whether they reject you, don't reject you, or stay somewhere in the muddy middle for years and years and years and on end, God has sovereignly appointed you to that task and me to that task as well. Amen. And that's what we find here in these first three verses of chapter four, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, he left Judea, verse three, and went again to Galilee. So Jesus is gaining a lot of attention, right? Amen. For his ministry, and his ministry is now beginning to eclipse that of John the Baptists, and, and now it's gaining some attention, and you think, well, that, that should be the goal. But that's not the goal for Jesus. Jesus is not, at this point, ready or interested in gaining a lot, of, uh, a, a lot of attention for his ministry, and particularly the kind of attention that would most likely come along, which is the negative attention from the Pharisees. He's not particularly interested in that. And really, if you think about this, even before we move on, it really tells us two things about Jesus, does it not? It tells us that, one, Jesus' goal is not like every other religious zealot's goal in the world that's went through history. That he just didn't want to create another uh, religious counter-movement. That's not Jesus' goal. It's not our goal. And friends, sometimes that's what we do as Christians in the public square. We we create Christianity as a religious counter-movement to the big bad ills of the world. That's not our goal. It's not Jesus' goal. And the second thing we notice about Jesus in this, maybe we take away, is that it also tells us that his message is not one that's prejudiced. Because of what we see in verses 4 through 6. As he's going to Galilee, verse 4, he had to travel through Samaria. And so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the property that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down in the well, and it was about noon. The most direct route to Galilee from where he was in Judah, which is right outside of Jerusalem in the southern part of Israel, was to go through Samaria. Now, to say in verse 4 that he had to go through Samaria is not exactly what you might think. It, it wasn't like what John's telling us is that that's the only option he had. In fact, Jews found lots of options to avoid Samaria at all costs. And so if you looked at a map, you'd find that there's Jerusalem and the Jordan River that goes kind of spans the, the, the north and the south, and you have the, the coastal areas over here. And lots of times Jews would go, broop, broop, and around to Galilee, yes. right? And it's important for you to recognize that, that Jesus here had to go through Samaria. Amen. Not because it was only his only geographic option but I think it's very much the, what we're trying to press out right now. It was a divine appointment. It suggests that he had a divine appointment there in Samaria that he needed and he was called to. He was, uh, this woman was appointed to be one of his, as we'll see later in John, that Jesus came to, to, to get his people. And this woman was certainly his, even if she didn't even know it yet. Amen. Jesus had to go to Samaria... And he must engage this woman. He must bring the good news to her. And again, we'll find out why more in the next point. But nonetheless, at this point, we find that, that, that even it tells us that even in this journey, this is an exhausting journey for Jesus. Now, not because necessarily, although it's the heat of the day and he's tired, and he's at the well and he needs water, apparently, as we'll see in a minute. But it's more than just physically exhausting. It's, it's, it's actually it sees him socially exhausting because of what he'll have to deal with and the barriers he'll have to overcome to engage this woman. Yes. Because there's a lot there. It's a lot there. And, it's, and, and friends, if you think that we live in such a weird world, listen, the world's been weird since the garden, <laughs> right? And I said last week, maybe the Christianity needs to embrace its weirdness if we're going to truly be a, a movement that attracts people and, and calls people to the gospel, Amen. Right? So at the end of the day, we kind of think about these first few verses. We come back with the fact that Jesus is willing, as we saw last week, to be a willing and first-hand witness, as we talked about in the end of chapter 3. And he is sent from the Father with this message that is to go to everyone, including like culturally boundary-pressing individuals like the Samaritan woman we'll see here in just a little bit. And it's really important we understand that. That Jesus is t- willing to take the gospel wherever it is needed. And there's not a boundary that he cannot or not willing to overcome, even socially and morally and culturally bankrupt people. The reason why that's important for us this morning is because, before we even move on to the second point of evangelism, is that. If I look at Jesus' love and his willingness to go press the boundaries, to exhaust himself, that the gospel is an exhausting reality, that you and I sharing it is an exhausting, costly work, it just, it just kind of points back to me. It sheds a light on me, doesn't it? It sheds a light on you, does it not? It sheds this light that just reminds us that, one, we're, we're often too lazy, aren't we? that Jesus would press the boundaries and give his very ounce of his life to see that this woman knows the gospel no matter what the cost might be and the, whether that's social cost or cultural cost or, or whatever, or even physical cost. But I, and maybe you're the same way, find myself often too lazy to not even walk across the street perhaps as an, an analogy, to talk to neighbors or even pray for their salvation around the table at night with our children. We're often too far concerned with the social hazards, right? The social hazards that may come with talking about the Lord than the, the eternal destinies of our brothers and sisters in Christ. I mean, our brothers and sisters, neighbors around us. But the second thing that it reminds me of, at least makes me have to wrestle with, and again, I'm inviting you to wrestle in this with me, is I'm far too self-centered. I am far too self-centered. And that's one of the biggest reasons why evangelistic efforts fall by the wayside with me, is I'm far too self-centered. My time, and your time probably as well, is far too focused on, on our needs, my needs. And I just don't have enough time or no time for outreach efforts, really, do I? Listen, friends, we, we need to have, as we're thinking about this evangelistic task, we just need to have some self-awareness, don't we? Just to some self-awareness. Like honest, calm, self-talk. Talk to ourselves honestly through the lenses of the gospel. So the first step then of, of evangelistic fervor,ness evangelistic heart in our lives, is, is really to sum it up this way, to be weary with the gospel. Are you weary with the gospel? I, I don't know that I am as weary with the gospel as I should be. And that remembering how much Jesus sacrificed to care for my soul to care for your soul and the links that he went to save us. See, Jesus, and we sometimes excuse our evangelistic efforts by, okay, well, um, Jesus, you know, he died generally for all, which is true, but that's actually not where John puts most of his emphasis, does he? He puts it just like we see here with the Samaritan woman, that the gospel is calling out particular people that were known to the father in heaven that he had given to his son jesus and if that if we know this and we understand the sovereign work of god and, and and how he sovereignly appoints us brothers and sisters it it helps us remember that one you and i are not christian by accident that god sovereignly worked in your life to bring you to faith in Christ. And if that's true, then in the same way that Jesus brings this gospel to this particular woman so you can be remembered that, hey, he's going to use you to bring the gospel to particular people that he has set his saving affections on. John 15, 16, later on, will remind us exactly what the scope of this is. Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, you didn't choose me. I chose you. Amen? Amen? How can that revolutionize our evangelistic hearts? Leaving this place this morning. I certainly hope that it does. Because if we start to see our evangelistic as a sovereign appointment, then what we're going to read about here in the next few verses when Jesus encounters this Samaritan woman will make all the difference. And that leads us to our second point. Evangelism as patient and persistent discourse with unbelievers. Just read along with me, verse 7. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, she asked, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God who was a saying you give me a drink you would ask of him and he would give you living water what we find here as he's kind of at this well he's exhausted he never takes his eye off the ball does he he never takes his eye off the the man, mission as tired as he is he never takes his eye off what god is doing and what god wants to do through him and so his caring and motivation to cross boundaries to people who are separated from god just shows us how lovingly and tenderly and persistently he is to pursue sinners right that he he, he's he's not trying to just pull the 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 card he's not just trying to get the cell that he's willing to engage and take the time to know who this woman is and what she needs to know not only of herself but what she needs to know about him see this woman would never have come to jerusalem to his ministry in judea you know why well first of all she's barely accepted in her own town so how would a woman of her ilk come from samaria and go to a go to a preaching opportunity of hearing jesus preach and feel like she could ever be accepted with a bunch of jews who hated her and hated her people and so jesus knows this and he's willing to cross whatever boundaries that were necessary now how do we know that she's barely accepted by a people in her own town. Well, it, 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 a couple of clues here help us. One is that women, generally, in, in the first century cult, Palestine culture, they traveled together um, as they carried out their daily responsibilities, and mostly because what safety, right? they they, it was safer for women to to travel together because the men were usually working out in the field or whatever and so they couldn't necessarily you know um, guarantee their safety so the women would go and it would help with their safety but that's not what we find here is it she's by herself but they also did their routines early in the morning before the sun got hot so there's a lot of clues here to tell you women this woman's very isolated she's very in some level we can assume at least socially or even culturally rejected and that's kind of gives us a little bit of clue as to what's really going on in the heart of this woman she's a woman who had been as we'll see next week more fully a woman who'd been married five times as we read earlier and the woman the man she's with now is not her husband and perhaps the current beau she has has left his wife for her and there just comes all kinds of social and cultural fright, doesn't it? We don't know all the details. It doesn't give us that. It we don't need all those details. All we know is that this woman lived in isolation and shame in her sin, and she'd rather go out risking her own safety in the midday sun so that she wouldn't have to deal with the scorn of the other women in her community. And Jesus knew this. He was right there at the right time. He was right there at the right time. Well, the conversation doesn't get off to a great start, does it? Jesus asks her for water, and what's her response? Her response seems a bit shrill, doesn't it? Uh, How do you, a Jew, ask me, a woman of Samaria, for water? Jews don't have anything to do with Samaritans. No doubt she was conditioned for this response, right? She'd have been taught, probably raised in a home, that just told her that Jews and Samaritans just don't get along and they avoid each other at all costs. And particularly, were, the hatred probably was more um, steamy from the Jews' side than it was the Samaritan side because it was the Jews who rejected them. And we, if you don't know the story, it's very simple. When the kingdom's divided, Israel and Judea, Israel quickly, more quickly fell to the uh, and was conquered by their northern um, neighbors syria and they accommodated their religious views and when they finally went back to jerusalem the jews did they kind of had this syncretistic vision of their religion so they tried to merge their jewish forms with these other pagan forms of worship and so that made them anathema to these quote-unquote faithful jews in the south and so they were like man we just we got to stay away from them because they're unclean we can't have anything to do with them which by the way god never said that that was something they invented on their own the gospel was big enough to be able to overcome those boundaries and allow them to be purified and be connect, reconnected to the true god of the universe but that's not what happened and so she's she's carrying around this brokenness she's carrying around this cultural baggage but she's also probably carrying around that that, that social baggage because she's out there and she's now in this weird awkward in those days even somewhat scandalous situation with a man at a well by herself and she's having a conversation with him which comes with a whole lot of other stuff here and so she no doubt is just putting up the defensive guard, right? It's not getting off to a great start. But this wouldn't deter Jesus, would it? Jesus' response is very simple. If you knew the gift of God who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. He understood the divine appointment that he was called to. And friends, we got to understand the divine appointment that we're called to. And he intended, and we need to be tenacious in the same way. Of course, we're not Jesus, and Jesus is Savior, and I get it. We don't wield, like the Spirit goes where the Spirit goes, as we saw in John chapter 3. But nonetheless, we need to have the same kind of tenacity, just like Jesus in some sense, to expose and be willing to, to, to be patiently, allow the pain to come to the surface and let it bubble over because people will show it in time the more you're around them jesus didn't just just try to rebuff her right away he took time Maybe. he didn't feel like he had to fix all of her problems right then in fact he'd be much later in the conversation when he begin to expose some of the faulty wiring and theological wiring of her of her soul jesus patiently allowed this conversation with this messy woman to unfold and show her much more, so that he could show her much more marvelous things than she had intended to find that day at the well. So important. And friends, it just reminds us that if if Jesus is willing to be this patient, if he's willing to let let this kind of thing unfold and be patient to let it kind of unfold the way it's supposed to, it reminds us that we too need to be persistent when we are faced with are confronted with cultural barriers the gospel is for the nations go therefore make disciples of all nations and friends we have the nations right here in middle Tennessee it's like I can't remember exactly what the how many different um Amanda she's not here this morning but she could tell me this but it's like uh, 170 different languages are spoken in Nashville Tennessee alone unbelievable you don't have to hop on a plane although you can I hope you will but you can just go and invade your neighbors and, 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 and whatever else. But we need to be persistent and patient in that, right? See, because, again, as we noted earlier, like Samaritans were considered like half-breeds. They intermarried with all these pagan people from Assyria. And they, and they accommodated their, their religious practices and made this one big syncretistic kind of all-things-to-all-people kind of religion, which is very much what we have in America today. America is not a Christian nation. It's a syncretistic religious nation that basically says, "You you do you, I do me, and I'm going to accommodate parts of yours, and I'm going to make a nice little mushy middle kind of God." That's what American religion is. It's moralistic, therapeutic deism. That's all it is. But we need to be patient with those barriers, because these barriers didn't get invented in American 20th century or 21st century. They got they 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 they, they showed their cards as far back as Babel when God mixed up their languages and then they had to spread all the word because they couldn't communicate with one another, there was this barrier that began to, 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 to take shape there so that God would show them, and Frank, show us, that there's no boundary. God, he won't cross in order to save us and bring the gospel to us. Amen. Friends, we should have the same kind of fervor, should we not? This, this plague has been, has, been, has been hurting us and, and, and preventing us and, and dividing us since the garden and, from, and, and, since the, and since Babel. So it takes time to discern what is going on in the hearts and minds of, of people, and we need to be patient like Jesus is with this woman. If we go in with guns blazing and go on the offensive attack, right? And there's a time to talk truth. Truth. But sometimes I think we just get into this and we kind of cowboy up and we pull up guns of slinging and we just want to blow up any real possibility of bringing the gospel to really change that person's heart. You've probably heard it before. I've heard it from many people, but one older gentleman in the first church I ever served at as as an ordained minister, he said, brother, they don't care what you know until they know that you care. And Jesus knows this. He cares for this woman. And he cares for her in spite of the cultural barriers between him and her. But he also cares for this woman, and he's persistently patient when he's confronted with the social barriers. Because think about what's going on here. It's probably not very scandalous for me to stand out in a parking lot or you, one of our other men, to stand in a parking lot and just talk to our our women, talk to to our woman. Or to go out in a public square and you you see someone out in a grocery store and you sit there and have a chat with them. But in Jesus' day, this was absolutely scandalous. Absolutely scandalous, even taboo. Because not only would Jews literally pray and thank God that they weren't Samaritans, they Jews, Jewish men would do the same thing about women. Yes. Thank God I'm not a woman. Yes. They had this view that women were ontologically lesser than men. Yes. And friends, listen, we did a class on this last year about this time and I just want to come back and to say it again. Any interpretation of Scripture that espouses that women are ontologically inferior or, you know, to men is at a step with Scripture. And it will ultimately distort the things that we find good. Things like the role, natural roles of husband and wife, the natural roles of pastor and congregation, the things that we hold highly here Grace. But if we in order to protect those things, make women lower than men, we're not really protecting those things. We're actually doing damage to Scripture. And we don't have to do that to teach and to live out the truth of Scripture. Just remember that. At the end of the day, I love what William Barclay notes about this whole engagement. He says this very simply, here is God so loving the world, not in theory, but in action. Friends, we need to do the same thing. We must be willing to not embrace or engage in sin, of course, but be willing to be in such proximity to other, to, to sinners, careless sinners, as we'll see in the next passage, that we will reach out to them who are miles away from even considering coming to worship here on Sunday morning or even reading their Bible. You know, that's what we should be considering as we think about our evangelistic movements. And that leads us to the third point, that evangelism is a is readiness to give mercies to careless sinners. God is ready To give mercy to careless sinners. And I bet you have had a recent moment where you felt so distraught about your sin. And you were wondering, how can this be? And I have seen and experienced such mercies from God. And the answer to you is very simple. He's still ready to dispense amazing mercies to careless sinners. Verse ten we already read it you knew if you knew the gift of god who was saying do you give me this drink you would ask him and he would give you living water and her response still not quite getting it right sir you don't even have a bucket that's kind of funny to me you don't even have a bucket in other words um yeah you're standing here in the heat and um you have no way to even drink anything yourself right where is your living water? Where do you get this living water? You're not greater than, than, than Jacob, are you? You couldn't be. Because he drank from this water himself, and you can't even, you can't even provide your own self-water. So where, what kind of water are you going to give me, Jesus? Tell me. See, oftentimes sinners come with a bite, don't they? Uh, some baggage. You know it. I know it, because we have sinners too. We come with baggage and it, and it weaves this complex web inside of us that, that, that ends up twisting and distorting things and not being able to see the real true light of, of reality until Jesus brings that light, the Spirit brings that light into our lives. And what it does, it just leaves us justifying our own sin patterns, right? I do it, you do it, you've been guilty of it probably, maybe even recently. The same is true of this woman. She has some bite to her response. You don't even have a bucket. I mean, like that's like that's that's bold. Just standing right there in the face of what she doesn't know right now is her Savior. And he's like, you don't even bucket. It's okay. Jesus again doesn't just quickly rebuff her, does he? He just doesn't just come in at her and, and and come back at her for any reason. He's like, okay, this is this is gonna be a process. Let's let's keep on. Let's keep pressing. Let the Lord begin to continue to work in this woman's life. She is so, he understands she is so hardened by her sin that she's basically challenging Jesus to prove that he is who he is by showing her where this water comes from. In other words, (laughs) this well has been here for ages, dude. She was from California. (laughs) All right. He's been here for ages, And I've been coming out here for all my life, getting water from this well. And guess what? I will come out here tomorrow and get water from this well and um, in this dreadful place, in this isolation that you found me in. And so you tell me what you have to offer me, Jesus. He's willing for her to be messy. He's willing for her to be a little half-baked. Sometimes we don't have tolerance for that in the church, do we? That you just have a little bit of half-baked... And I'm not saying that these are people who who have weird and wonky beliefs, but I'm saying people who who know enough about Christ that they're believers, but they got a long way to go. But yet, he's still not dissuaded, is he, from pressing on with her. His answer is very, very simple in verse 13. Everyone who drinks from this water will be thirsty again. Great. Great. I'm glad this well has been here for as long as it has been. I'm glad it served you well, but you're gonna be thirsty again and it's never going to quench your thirst. I have water. I have something that will quench it forever. And what he is really doing here in this moment is he's moving her from the physical like idea of what's going on here, and he's moving her into the, 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 the inside, the internal, the heart issues. And he's recognizing, showing her that she, her emptiness is that she has this empty heart, that's this empty well inside of her. And, and this well is, needs much more than physical water for her for her soul she needs I mean, for her body she needs water for her soul and that leads us to our last point evangelism as radiating the priceless excellencies of christ because that's exactly what he leaves there or at least what we're going to leave with today but what whoever drinks from this water that i give him will never get thirsty again In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. This is what he leaves this part of the conversation. This is the grabbing point. This is the linchpin of evangelism. Is to to be patient enough to get to the point where you can lower the boom, right? You can lower it down. You can say, let me show you the priceless excellencies of Christ. May I? May I do that? right in the middle of your mess you may not believe it and i'm okay with that and i'm okay continuing with you in that but let me tell you that anywhere we go from this point is that i need to let you know the ground for my relationship with you is the priceless excellencies of jesus amazing is it not now we need a little help grasping what jesus is trying to get out here so let's just kind of back up this well has been here for thousands of years right And it has a lot of historical, rich, storied history. It's in the realm of the region of Shechem. And if you will remember, if you don't help you, Abraham first laid his eyes on Canaan from Shechem. And then two years, two generations later, his own grandson Jacob would return back to Shechem and then he would establish this well here and this well would feed his family and his flocks for several years. And then eventually... As things began to go through famine and Joseph's in Egypt, they have to go to Egypt to get their rations. But then Jacob makes Joseph make him a promise, does he not? And what does he make him ask? I want my bones to be buried back in Shechem. I want to be back near this well. And this well had been feeding and had been been providing people with good water for all those years, even up to this point with Jesus. And here's the wonderful thing. It's still an active well today. It's still an in use in some places. It's a wonderful thing. It's an absolutely magnificent thing. But here's the simple point that I want you guys, I want us all to wrestle with before we bring the close of our sermon. She's right. This is a special place. And she's challenging Jesus to show her really what that special place was all about. Here's what it's all about. It's the beginning point of God's covenantal work with his people. So that well, it was a wonderful well, but it's still an earthly well. But it was the picture forth to a well that would never run dry. That would be because of the agency of the spirit that has been absent from the human soul since the garden and that Jesus would provide after his death and resurrection and would fill the souls of his people. And thus he can say here in verse 14, it will be a well of water springing up from him for eternal life. Do you understand it? Do you see that this morning? And and basically what he's doing, he's connecting the same point that he connected to Nicodemus. You need water and spirit to be born again. And he's not talking about baptism and then us then getting the spirit. He is saying that the spirit washes over you both inside and out. And he's saying, if you cannot have this new life, you can't have this springing life unless you get me. And so you can have all your focus, Missy, on this thousands-of-year-old well. But as long as your focus is on this well, you're missing the point. Because this well points to something much more magnificent. The priceless excellencies of Christ. See, we said it earlier, the range of scope for the gospel message. Isn't it amazing how you can take this Nicodemus who is a religious, cultural insider. And then you have this woman who is the exact opposite of that in every way. And yet the same gospel message is for both of them. For both of them. Jesus is calling her to drink the water that he gives so that she'll never thirst again. And not only will she never thirst again, that she can drink this water, the water of the Spirit. He'll put the Spirit in her and it will overflow through her life for eternity. For eternity. Friends, as we begin to bring, like, land this for us, it just really calls us to ask some hard questions can you imagine even the, the little subtle spark we had not even gotten into this text we got a long way to go but can you imagine at this point when she hears these words from jesus and how, this woman who is slavishly attended to her daily responsibilities on a daily basis in her shame and her dejection can you imagine what nourishment it began to give her can you imagine how this well was already beginning to refresh your soul? Now, Jesus had a long way to go still. and He's going to have to put his finger on some very sore spots in her life. We'll see next week. But friends, before he does that, he shows her everything she needs. And My friends, for us this morning, the question is for us as well. Are we, have we experienced this never-ending refreshment of the Spirit in our life? that life-changing reality of Jesus' death and resurrection that results in the, in the pouring out of the Spirit in our lives? And if not, why not? See, I suggest it's probably because there's maybe some ongoing habitual sin that we wear around like a comfortable like T-shirt. That's where she is. She's wearing this identity, this old man, this old woman identity around her, and it shapes everything about her to the point that she is not able to see who Jesus is until a little bit later. And friends, many of us in here this morning probably do this ourselves in some way. We're trying or are still wearing the same old tired identity of the old man, and sadly we're prone to wear them privately, we don't really want anyone to get into that space. So at home, I have a really tired drawer of T-shirts. I mean, tired. My wife reminds me all the time of, I don't even understand why you even try to wear those things. I, they're offensive to wear in the house. That's how tired they are. Okay, so I did. I, went, I ran out to Walmart like a good, good boy and, and got me a bunch of T-shirts for four bucks a piece, and we'll see how long those last us. But, you know, I had to go out there because I had needed something clean something new to wear over me and i love those t-shirts and i'm not getting rid of them i can tell you that right now i'm not getting rid of them because i love them. they're comfortable and i don't care if Amanda likes it or not and y'all can tell her that you can not quote me on that one okay she knows this um but, but the reason i like them is because they're functional and sometimes we like our sin because it's functional we, we, we don't like it, we feel the despair of it, we feel the brokenness of it, but, but, but we've just kind of learned to live in this functional space with our sin, with our old wardrobe that we forget that we have been given a heavenly wardrobe a wardrobe that only Christ can give us. The wardrobe of the King himself, Jesus, that has been... Re- that is, like, he gives us his righteousness and we, he takes on our unrighteousness. Friends, if that wardrobe is available to us, why would we continue to settle on the old, tattered wardrobe? Why? And friends, I'm asking you why because I'm asking myself why. Because I'm here. I can see it all over myself. And see, Jesus is inviting this woman, and he's inviting you to redress yourselves and redress myself in Christ and drink from that well, that well that you've inherited as an adopted son or daughter of Jesus. What an amazing, amazing truth. But then there's another question, then we're done. If this is true, Because I told you this whole series is going to be about evangelism. If you are experiencing that, and I hope that you are, is it shaping the way you share that refreshment with others? Amen? Is it shaping how you're that refreshment with others? Those neighbors who have that marriage that's on the on the rocks. Or the children who are struggling in various things in their life. Or, or, or that neighbor who has a, a job that they're just never satisfied with. Or, or that neighbor or that friend or, or a family member who has this past that continues to haunt them and they can't seem to walk away from it. Like, if you're experiencing the refreshment of Christ and this war with Christ, how can you bring this gospel to these people in these kinds of places and show them that although this world is rocky, and I've said, a lot, said it several times before, I don't trust a Christian who doesn't walk with a limp i said this to my group the other night i don't trust a christian don't walk with a limp you can bring your own garbage your own trash your own your own old wardrobe into full picture with people and show them that even despite that this wardrobe is there and it's fighting for your identity you have a new identity in the wardrobe of christ let me ask you this are you able to do that are you willing to do that because friends this is what it's all about you can have all the great techniques and your doctrine all in the right place and as we'll talk about next week how to what the points are for true conversion in people, and you can tell them, well, this is what you need for true conversion. You need to know your sin, you need to know the right worship of God. All those things are important. We're going to talk about that next week. But if you are not displaying the new wardrobe that you are dressed in and willing to show that to the people that God has put you among sovereignly, friends, may we redouble our efforts this week and may our joy be found in this place. May we ask God for help there. In fact, as we sang this morning, and uh, that, that once the last I guess it was in the first song, all I have is Christ. The strength to follow your commands can never come for me. So, Father, use my ransom life in any way you choose, and let my song forever be. My only boast is in you. Amen. Friends, as we come to the table this morning, we come together as free men and free women. Made new in Jesus. Let's embrace that identity at the table and then leave here this morning asking God to use us, filling us with the Spirit so that others may come to know Jesus. Father, help us now as we finish our time together this morning. Thank you for this word that you've given us. It is your word, it's not my word, it's not my ideas. These are just, God, we just want to be plain with the scriptures. Be plain with them. God, be be gracious to us, God. Sinners saved by grace, needing your help to not only remind ourselves of who we are, what wardrobe we wear in Christ, so that we will then drink deeply of the well that we have in Christ. God, may that be true of us this morning. If that's where some of us are, may we'll take a moment this morning to, to, to bring ourselves before you before we take of the table. And then Jesus use it. Spend us. Let us offer our lives to be spent for you, Christ. It's in Christ's name. Amen.